Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome to the second part of the Irish Passport two-part series on Northern Ireland. In this episode, we are going to Belfast as the city gears up for the annual peak of the marching season. Yes, welcome back listeners. So if you've already caught up with our last episode about Derry, you'll know that we travelled to Northern Ireland recently to do some reporting on the 12th of July period. Now if you're new to the podcast, you might want to take a listen to that episode first because it explains a lot of the background stuff that we'll be discussing today. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the July 12th celebrations, their history and how they're seen today. We'll be speaking to people from both communities about what the city is like during these celebrations and why they inspire joy and happiness for some and fear and intimidation in others. So we left Derry on the 11th of July and we drove across the province of Northern Ireland to Belfast, the second biggest city on the island of Ireland after Dublin. Now this was no ordinary day in Belfast. The night of the 11th of July is when people from the Unionist and British identifying communities in Northern Ireland celebrate their identities and culture with huge bonfires and street parties. It's the build-up to the so-called Glorious Twelfth when the Protestant fraternity known as the Orange Order marched the streets all over Northern Ireland They're accompanied by processions of flute bands and the sound of pounding drums. Uh, They do this every year over the course of a whole parade season. Uh, They celebrate military victories over Catholics in the 17th century, among lots of other things. Uh, It's a tradition that isn't very well understood in the Republic. So before we go any further, let's hear from a specialist on the issue to get a bit of historical context for the celebrations and what they mean. Uh, This is Donald McRaild, a professor of British and Irish history in Roehampton University, and he's the author of Faith, Fraternity and Fighting, The Orange Order and Irish Migrants in Northern England. The Orange Order is a Protestant self-defence association which was established after the Battle of the Diamond in County Armagh in 1795 and its principal objectives were to defend Protestantism and Protestants against what they saw as the rising Catholic threat, the Catholic threat which of course resulted in the 1798 Rising. Okay, so to break that down a bit, listeners, the organisations, like so many aspects of Irish culture, uh, go back to the colonial penal laws in the 18th century. Now, this was a time when the British Crown was trying to convert the Irish population to Protestantism, and that was basically a matter of national security for Britain. The laws tried to make life difficult for Catholics and for dissenting Protestants, so that they might eventually go over to the established Anglican Church. In reality, though, those laws just created a deep set of divisions, uh, built around class class and religion. So you ended up with this tiny, very, very wealthy Anglican colonial elite, a small disenfranchised population of dissenting Protestants, mostly in the north, that's people like Presbyterians and Methodists, and a sprawling majority of pretty much wretchedly poor and disempowered Catholics. So unsurprisingly, you get these sectarian clashes in the 18th century between these groups all the time. And there were these kind of mafia, militia groups all over the country uh, representing the different religious factions. And that was the context in which the Orange Order grew up. It started as a secret society created to defend Protestant interests and British loyalty against those growing and dangerous Catholic militias, especially in mixed areas like County Armagh. In the 1780s and 90s, though, the Order faced an even greater threat, the United Irishman. Our old friends, the United Irishmen. Now, we've mentioned those guys before. It was a massive rebel movement that was inspired by the French Revolution. They wanted to unite Catholics and Protestants together to overthrow British rule entirely and establish a secular Irish republic. Exactly. And in response to that, the British administration back then in the 18th century threw all its support behind the Orange Order to try and re-establish division and the old sectarian order against this this idea of a, a secular republic. The United Irishmen staged one of Ireland's biggest rebellions in 1798, but it was violently defeated and pretty much ended in a bloodbath, really, you know, all over the country 
country, particularly in the north actually. So in the aftermath of that, membership of the Orange Order pretty much exploded because all these Protestants were seeking to band back together and defend their links with the British Crown. Uh, it's primarily an organisation back then of Anglicans. Uh, Presbyterians didn't become involved until much later in the 19th century, later 19th century. It was supported by local uh, landed elites and local um, you know, industrialists and so on. It was seen as a very useful tool for the establishment in, in Ulster. Uh, and it was something that was exported around the world by Ulster emigrants pretty much everywhere that the Irish went. Since their establishment, one of the major activities of the Orange Order has been these yearly parades. Uh, their members dress up in these really striking uh, costumes with black bowler hats and these kind of electric orange slashes. And they lead huge processions through towns and cities in Northern Ireland. These processions bang these huge big drums called lambeg drums, and they play flutes, usually in commemoration of military victories. Uh, it's a tradition that has always stoked tensions, uh, but which became particularly contentious during the civil rights movement and subsequent conflict between 1968 and 1998 because it was seen by many nationalists as this kind of symbol of Protestant Unionist supremacy uh, in Northern Ireland. The, f the first parades are in the, some of the early 1800s. Uh, but you have parades in Ulster very quickly established as part of the cultural fabric of Orangism. Why, why does it go on so long? Why has it become so absolutely central to the idea of being orange. Well, first of all, of course, the Orange Order has that military evocation because of the, you know, the background in military lodges. Parading and marching in military fashion has that sense of being proud, sober, and ordered. I think, that, and, and the uniforms and the narrative is, is of well-organized people with clear reference to Freemasonry with its secret rituals and to the military with its marching tradition, its bands and whatnot, carrying banners and flags. Um, but once you get opposition to marching, then of course your desire to march grows. What you also get, there were party processions acts in the 1820s, 30s and 40s, which ban uh, parading, sectarian parading. So when the state starts to ban these things, then of course people want to do them even more. And you have a number of cause celebre around this question of trying to stop Orangemen parading, an Orangeman desiring to parade. So there's been a lot of opposition and there's been hostility around those parades, but they are locked into the mentality for a reason of opposition to that opposition because they really have been going on for a very long time. And these traditions really are very long indeed. One of the most notorious flashpoints was in the town of Drumcree, where Catholic residents had decided to resist Orange marchers parading through their district back in 1972. That standoff led to recurring violence and rioting at the site right into 1998. Protestant Orangemen had this idea that where you could parade, you could control. There, there, is, there is a validity in the claim that these are exertions of, of, um, of, of oppression, of the, of the uh, expression of the dominant ethne over the weaker ethne. Um, though, of course, Republicans also march and have flute bands and other things as well. In many ways, these are, uh, you know, reacting to the existence of orange parades. Uh, factually, though, you know, whether the average orangeman in Ulster really represents the hegemony of um, wider loyalism over republicanism is probably moot because, of course, most of the people we're talking about are working class and an often disadvantaged working class set against each other. One orange, one green, you know, one, one loyalist unionist, one re republican. But in the broader sense, it's true. I think that's a really important point that McGrail made there. You know, we have to remember that the Orange Order and the 12th in general doesn't represent all Protestants or Unionists in Northern Ireland. There's a lot of class politics involved here and intercommunity distinctions, and we need to always keep that in mind in this discussion. Definitely. Whatever the case, though, the 11th and 12th of July are perhaps the most starkly divided time in Northern Ireland between the two communities. For many Protestant Unionists, 
This is the peak yearly festival of their culture. It's as important to them as, let's say, the 4th of July in the US. Yeah. Uh, for nationalists and those who identify as Irish, though, it can be quite a scary time. And it's common for people to leave Northern Ireland entirely. Lots of people take some time off work. The 12th of July is a public holiday in Northern Ireland, by the way. And they cross the border into the Republic for short holidays in Donegal, Dublin or Wexford. Now, we spoke in our last episode about how we're a bit removed from all this in the Republic. You know, marches like this generally don't take place there. Uh, but this phenomenon is one thing that is noticeable down south every year. Suddenly you'll see all these UK registered cars showing up and you'll likely hear northern accents on the streets all around the place. So people thought it was really weird for us being Irish to take the reverse journey, to travel into Northern Ireland for this exact time of year. Our families were a bit concerned for our safety and lots of people along the way gave us pretty stern warnings to be careful. It's probably not obvious for some of our international listeners, but our accents do make us immediately identifiable in Northern Ireland as being from the Irish Republic. And that tends to make us very conspicuous at this time of year, uh, when of course these huge bonfires are being set up burning symbols of that same Republic. Depending on where we were in the city, our southern accents were either a serious safety liability or a ticket to a warm welcome. But we went straight into the thick of it anyway all for you listeners uh, further into the thick of it actually than we ever thought would get um, and I think it's <laughs> fair, I think it's fair to say that we were consistently surprised by almost everything we thought we knew about the 12th um, in Northern Ireland would you say that Naomi? Yeah definitely mm. We definitely saw several sides to the whole cultural phenomenon uh, we saw how it can be a beloved family tradition uh, and a nice day out with barbecues and bouncy castles for children um, in some communities But we also saw the sad truth that particularly the 11th can be quite scary and frankly a festival of hate. And we also got an interesting insight into how the parade season uh, is, is viewed from the other side of the city, where lots of Catholic residents feel like they have to stay well away from the city centre until the whole thing has died down. In the background, of course, the political situation was continuing to destabilise in Northern Ireland. Of course, it has no functioning government. It's pretty much at the front line of the Brexit fallout. So while we were in the north, there was an unusually high level of disorder and arson in various flashpoints across the province. And shortly afterwards, the houses of the famous Republicans, Jerry Adams and Bobby Story, were petrol bombed. Not by loyalists, but it's believed by Republicans who would like to revive the armed struggle against British rule. Okay, so before we go any further, just like in the last episode, we have to make a disclaimer here. We're coming at this whole situation from a very specific perspective as citizens of the Irish Republic. You know, we we try, as always, to be open-minded, but this subject is thick with history, and it's about as contentious as a topic uh, can get. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we know our report is probably not going to please everyone. We're absolutely aware of that. Uh, we we know we have our own particular perspectives and no doubt we'll see things differently to other people and probably overlook things as well. So we welcome you getting in touch with us to tell us what we missed. And if you have something to say, don't hesitate to hit us up on Twitter. Yeah, you can find us as always at at Passport Irish. We appreciate the heads up. And like everyone else, we're trying to understand. Okay, so let's start by looking a bit at the city of Belfast. Um, This is, of course, the capital of Northern Ireland, and it's by far the biggest city in the province. Um, Actually, Steve Bradley, the regeneration consultant that we interviewed in our previous episode, he described Northern Ireland as something of a Belfast city-state. Like Derry, this was once the site of a colonial plantation. It was settled by English and Scottish migrants in the 17th century. Unlike Derry, though, this side of Northern Ireland is pretty much as far from the border as you can get, and Belfast is positioned right within the heartland of Unionist, British-identifying Northern Ireland, which includes the coastal counties of Antrim and Down. Right, so as a result, Belfast once had a firm Protestant majority, but this has definitely changed in the last decades. According to the most recent 2011 census, uh, almost 42% of the population of Belfast now identify as Catholic. The population identifying as Protestant has also fallen to only 34%, according to those figures. But that also seems to reflect the rapidly growing number of people who don't identify with either group, and that has grown to about 24% now. Very important to remember that quarter of the population that isn't on Mm. either of these two sides that we're going to be talking so much about. But to just describe what Belfast is like, it has a very different cityscape to Derry. Like there's no medieval big walls and fortifications here. This city's major period of growth was during the Industrial Revolution. The city's waterfront faces out onto huge historic shipyards where, of course, the Titanic was built famously back in 1912. Yeah, of course, Belfast was home to one of the largest shipyards in the world at the beginning of the 20th century. It was kind of a world leader in shipbuilding. Um, and that's the reason the Titanic was built there and lots of other cruise liners. It was one of the only shipyards that was big enough, really, to, uh, to house them. That gives a glimpse into the status of Belfast as an industrial city. 
And that makes it a bit of an oddity in Ireland. The Industrial Revolution didn't really happen in the rest of the country, which of course had been devastated by that great famine in the mid-19th century. Indeed. Uh, During the 19th century and much of the 20th century, Belfast was very much a jewel in the United Kingdom's industrial crown. It also played a very important role strategically to the UK because it's positioned at the Straits of the Irish Sea between Scotland and Northern Ireland. It would have been really, really significant for any potential naval invasion of the UK. These two fundamental assets provided plenty of incentive for the UK to hang on to this city and the Northern region in general after the South won independence in 1922. Absolutely. In addition, of course, Belfast was largely loyal to the British crown. Uh, During the industrial period, the city built up this very proud Protestant working class and middle class um, who had this reputation for hard work and success, you know, the the Protestant work ethic thing. These British-identifying Protestants, they were contrasted all the time to the agricultural Irish-identifying population in the South who were often stereotyped as lazy and treacherous. Damn it, Tim, they're on to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like we laugh, but those stereotypes of industrious Protestants versus lazy Catholics, you know, they persisted until relatively recently and they kind of hang around a little bit in the air even still. Our small farms are still worked by people who, like myself, can trace their descent from the 17th century settlers. My plot of land may be small, but I am entirely self-supporting. Yes. It is from the hard work of the wee farmers that Ulster has built up its reputation for sturdiness and independence. The Northern Ireland Parliament made this declaration at the outbreak of war. The people of loyal Ulster will share the burdens of their kith and kin in every part of the empire to the uttermost extent of their resources. Britain's difficulty is Northern Ireland's opportunity to place all her possessions, human and material, at the service of our King. The people of Ulster have long loved and defended liberty. They will not fail to defend it now. They're such batshit clips, by the way. (laughs) Where did you find them? They're so funny. Don't even ask. Um, They're from a 1946 tourist film called The Voice of Ulster. And the second one is a 1940s British Council film called Ulster in Peace and War. That second clip that you might have caught, listeners, is a pointed dig at the Irish Republic, which traditionally held that Britain's difficulty was Ireland's opportunity. The Republic, of course, remained neutral during World War II. And that further increased this British image of uh, doughty Ulster Protestants as upstanding and dutiful compared to their neighbours in the south. So uh, Belfast, like we said, is roughly divided between Protestant and Catholic. And there are flashpoints between the two sides uh, where huge walls have been built, known as peace lines. Uh, They're up to 7.6 metres tall and they can run for up to five kilometres in length. The peace lines were originally built in 1969 during the Troubles. But since the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, they have actually, depressingly, increased in number and in height. So there are more of them than ever before. They're a visual reminder of how sadly segregated people's lives can be. Attending different schools, living in different spaces. It's not uncommon for people not to meet someone from the other side until they're grown adults, despite huge efforts to address this. There are also, of course, huge areas of in-between territory where Catholics and Protestants um, totally live peacefully together. And that's really important to note. The city was far more integrated before the conflict broke out in the late 60s. People segregated as a response to violence and feeling unsafe. And still today, families can be intimidated out of their homes if they're deemed to be in the wrong place. Some older people remember with great nostalgia the days when communities were more mixed and it just wasn't a big deal. Okay, so let's get on to the bonfires. Uh, The first bonfire we visited when we arrived in Belfast was on the Donegal Pass. That's just south of the city centre and on its eastern side, it runs through this loyalist stronghold. And the affiliations here are very clear to see. Um, On the way into the road, there is this massive mural of a Union Jack with the letters UVF. UVF stands for Ulster Volunteer Force. And this particular part of Belfast is UVF turf. It emerged during the Troubles to oppose Irish Republicanism and keep Northern Ireland part of the UK. And it's named after the original Ulster Volunteers, who were a militia formed to resist Home Rule in 1913. 
During the Troubles, this group killed hundreds of people, mostly Catholic civilians who were shot or stabbed at random. It also bombed Dublin and Monaghan in the Republic of Ireland in 1974, killing 34 people. And that was the single um, deadliest bombing uh, of the whole Troubles, I think. Nowadays, the UVF is a very different thing. Time has moved on, much of the conflict ended in 1998, but groups like the UVF persist as kind of local strongmen who dominate their area and deal out vigilante justice. Most of the people they attack or kill these days are within their own community, often teenagers who they've decided are out of line. There are turf disputes over drug dealing and they sometimes also feud with other loyalist groups. So as we walked into this area, there were flags of the UVF up on lampposts all over the place. Uh, they're orange and purple flags and they have the red hand of Ulster over the letters UVF. Uh, funnily enough, it's something of a local Chinatown too. So there were also all these yummy looking takeaways and restaurants, you know, just beneath the flags, um, uh, which you know <laughs> made us pretty hungry. Yeah, it was a really interesting like mix. And Tim and I totally caved and went for Chinese in the end. <laughs> But that's another story. It was great. Yeah. Anyway, the atmosphere brightened up a lot as we continued down the street. There was a community garden that was holding a barbecue. There was a big bouncy castle for children. There were chip vans and there was music playing. And lots of young families just, you know, out, out in the sun having a nice time. Sure, yeah. I think it's fair to say, despite this omnipresent uh, um, symbolism of the UVF, um, it didn't feel in the slightest bit threatening uh, where we were. No. Uh, we were a little bit nervous approaching people to speak to at first. Uh, but when we did talk to one couple, they couldn't have been friendlier. Oh, I was born, right? around this district and um, it's just every year at this time the same sort of thing happens you know it's just celebrating your culture you know so it is but you don't get the same excitement as what you it's did not, years it's ago not, it's not the same it used to be years it's not the same know. I think from the troubles it sort of hasn't it's changed really you know because when you were younger you know the excitement building up to the 12th especially the 11th you know what I mean so it was you know on Sandy Row I'm sure you've heard of Sandy Row I mean, everybody headed to Sandy Road, didn't they? Always, every 11th. I mean, you couldn't have got moving. You more or less moved with a crowd. You know, you didn't move, the crowd moved you, you know, too. Would you go to one tonight? We have one just on the corner. Could we go and see it? Would we be okay to have a look? Uh-huh. It's called, yes. It's called, yes. It's called, yes. It's our new friends told us the event here was organised by a local community forum, which provides grants for neighbourhood activities like this during the holidays. As we made our way to the local bonfire, their interest was actually piqued by the name of our podcast, because one of them was in the process of applying for an Irish passport herself. Let's have a listen. Eight, eight to ten week backlog. No way. Guess it's, it's to do with Brexit. I know, because it means you, you have still have a European passport, more or less. Is that why you're applying? Well, I would have more, it would have been more complicated for me to get a British one. I had a British one years ago. Yeah. But because it was, um, I was married then, but I'm divorced now, um, I would have to get all this, these papers and stuff, which I don't have anymore. Yeah. But everybody seems you know, to be getting nice passports. The local bonfire was relatively small, but still about the size of a one-storey house, say. There were no flags on it at all, but the UVF symbols were still fluttering around us. When we asked our new friends about this, they immediately drew the attention away and instead spoke about the flags for local flute bands. It was very much in the spirit of kindness, I think, and they wanted to bring out the pride they had in their traditions. Fire usually gets lit about half eleven, twelve, doesn't it, Bella? I'll be half eleven, twelve. And then there's fireworks. So we'll have the fireworks this year. We usually have the fireworks as well, you know. For the kids first, you know, so they can go on the bed and young ones. I see, I see. No, there'll be a big crowd up here, Nick and Nick. 12 o'clock. See, they don't like them. Years ago, they used to like them earlier on, you know, but it just seemed to go fuller and fuller, and that's usually 12 o'clock. Yeah. So and what are the flags here? Well, that's the Union Jack. Yeah. What's that, the That one boy. I know. The, I think that's the one. Yes, boys, the Apprentice one. That's the, the maroony coloured one. Apprentice boys, okay. Yeah. YCB, Young Southern Volunteers. That was junior version of UVF. Okay. Also volunteer force. And then that one's UVF. The bond, that's our bond, our bond down here. Okay. We have our, oh, you'll there. see there, they'll, 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 be, they'll be marching around oh, tonight, they but the they don't come round in their uniforms or anything, you know. uniforms is for the moral, like, you know. Okay, I see. So oh. they just come round in their ordinary clothes tonight, yeah. you know. So it's Belfast Young Conquerors. They also told us about some community tensions. This year, the council had tried to dismantle some bonfires or move them out of uh, fire safety fears, while at the same time, they said this area was falling victim to redevelopment and a depletion of social housing and community dispersal. 
Local bonfires would be around this size normally, would they? Or is that a no, big some of them's massive. Some of them's big, right. really too big. See, that's far, one far too big. There might be a bit of trouble in there too. Now, not over here, but over the east. Mm. Why? Because within the day at lunchtime, and knocked my bonfire down and started taking it all away. Like oh, I see. Instead of doing it before the day was to happen, you know, they're only really going to cause trouble. Okay. You know? So the council moved in or something? Last mm -hmm. night, they, uh, there was trouble over the east, a bit of trouble too, but then took a bonfire. But I mean, they should have took it weeks before that, you know, instead of waiting to the last day, they sort of did, you know. Do people feel like their culture is sort of under attack? Well, is that yes, why? That's yes. Right. See, that's what it is. That's why they're but sort of sensitive about it? In a way, too, it's it? right, because a lot of them are too close to buildings and all. Yeah. You know, it can be dangerous to people, but shouldn't happen. Yeah. And that's why they do it, you know. You see, years ago when we were kids, you know, when you were doing your bonfire, like every street you, you had, you started off with a small, a, well, not when I say small, I don't mean tiny, yeah, but you, you still had a, a load of woods, and as the night went on, you, you just kept throwing it on, throwing it on, you like know what I mean? Mountain, you know. Well, that's the way they're all doing them now. <laughs> yeah. But the, the only thing well, about actually, the, the pallets, they burn, they it don't burns last too quick. Long because really? the earth can get to it burns too quick. Okay. Years ago, the. That went for days because somebody just left a nori, but I wouldn't see it all. Through it all, you know <laughs> what I mean. Going. And but every every street more or less had a, a, every a bonfire. Every street had their own bonfire. Right. You, know? you know, like where I lived around here, I was young. It was different housing and all. And yeah. All the streets, and you're actually two: one at the top of the street and one yeah. at the bottom. bottom. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But then it's all boiled down to just one for each area, sort of thing. Right. Is that from, from lack of interest or it was uh, too contentious? No, well, the way the housing was changed and all, you know, it's, it's, it's different too now. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't have a car park or anything. That was, that was actually our streets too. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes, they were all three streets. See, I, so what I, happened I, to them? Well, what happened actually, uh, that's why I had to move out of here at the time. They were knocking all the old houses down to build these new ones. Really? So they moved okay. us. I actually ended up in a place called Craigie at the other side of the town. Yeah. But they promised us to get offered a house back again. Yeah. But they knocked down 1,200 houses and only built six. So <laughs> how do you get the so house back again? So I mean, how can you get the people back in again? You know what I mean? Well, you see, it's the way, it's the, way the work now, right? the, yeah. the moves, the, the people that they want moves, you know what I mean? Yeah. So if we came here later, do you think we'd be okay to wander around or would it be no, be better? No, no, you'd be okay. safe no, enough. No, you'd be, yeah. be safe enough. No, you'd be okay. fine. Would we, would we be okay to ask people questions like we chatted to I would to think you? so, as long as when you say about the Irish thing, you yeah. know. <laughs> it makes you, like, you know, it's, it's not in the two. Because <laughs> the first thing come in their heads is he's trying to get us into an all Ireland or something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so you're doing it's like a it's documentary just a mentality, you know. Thing, okay, you know? Yeah. that's a good word to say, actually. Yeah. Like, because that's that is what we're doing. Yeah, it's like yeah. a documentary yeah. style report yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much yeah, for chatting to us. Well, yeah. it was yeah. great yeah. to meet you. Have a lovely meeting. Thank you. Okay, all the best. And they were right, we did pass the area later on and it was still an absolutely fine atmosphere. Yeah, a lot of people we spoke to in advance told us that this was the real face of the 12th, like you might see in smaller towns. You know, a lot of people said that Belfast isn't very representative of what the 12th means in Northern Ireland uh, at large. Uh, but of course, we were only 10 minutes walk away from these huge megastructures that have a rather less savoury reputation than that. As we headed north from the Donegal Pass toward the Iloilist area of Sandy Row, the streets were thronged with people outside pubs and shops. Many of them were wearing British flags or red, white and blue colours and there was a kind of a street party atmosphere going on. Yeah, the flag issue and the politics around flags are, was really interesting throughout our uh, trip, actually. I was surprised here at the number of English flags at first, but then, of course, I remembered that the World Cup was going on mm -hmm. while we were there and England was playing uh, Croatia that night, so that explains it a bit. Um, but it was definitely an interesting crossover with those, you know, football English flags and the general um, celebration of Britain. There was other unexpected flags, too, such as the American Confederate flag, which was flying from one Unionist pub we saw. That made us pretty uneasy, considering its renewed mm. political significance in the last few years and its adoption to support racist or alt-right positions in the United States. The general atmosphere here was a bit laddish and kind of macho, but it's still mm -hmm. pretty good-natured and not completely out of the ordinary. There was also a lot of novelty merchandise everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people were wearing, you know, uh, British flag wigs and sunglasses and hats. And there were loads of there was loads of paraphernalia uh, to do with the, the parades, flutes and drums and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we stopped into a small shop that was selling flute band supplies uh, to ask what trade was like at this time of year. Um, David Mulligan, uh, part owner of Sandy Row Merchant Band Supplies, yeah. Belfast and Sandy Row here. What's your biggest selling item, would you say? It depends on the time of the year. Uh, mostly drums and flutes, yeah. but at this over the 12th period, you have all the, the traditional souvenirs and flags, 
which uh, the 12th of July is a traditional parade held by the Orange Order uh, to commemorate the Battle of the Boyne. In Northern Ireland, there's approximately 650 marching bands, uh, plus you would have your pipe bands and that on top of it, but connected to Loyal Order parades and that. There would be some bands that only parade once a year, yeah. uh, but there's roughly about 650 marching bands. That's amazing. Okay, there's um, a bit of a, there's a street party vibe happening out there, so what would happen on a typical 11th this evening then from now? Uh, well, it's like any, any carnival atmosphere, you know, there'll be plenty of beer and music and uh, then they'll light the fires later on. Yeah. Will you be going to a bonfire yourself? I will be, but I'll be going to one in Carrickfergus, that's my hometown, that's where fun. King William landed himself, the man that started all this. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Okay, so that's um, an important one then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and what would you say like the whole, like the most important ethos is? that you celebrate with this festival? Is it about community? Is it about like tradition? How, how would you describe it? It's everything rolled in. It's community and tradition. It's something that's passed down and it's just a carnival atmosphere that everybody enjoys and everybody's welcome to come to and enjoy. Just around the corner from this shop though, the atmosphere suddenly changed. Uh, in a massive vacant lot on Sandy Row, there was this enormous pyre and I think when it came into our site, it kind of took our breath away. Completely. Mm. Just at the entrance, there were big gangs of young men that were hanging around. And it was the first time we felt we should probably fall back a little bit. So we walked around to the other side to take a look at the bonfire through the wire fences that uh, were surrounding it. Now this thing was enormous. It was like the mutant monster version of the one that we had seen a few minutes earlier. Like it's hard to convey its its scale and it's hard to convey how close it was to all the other buildings around it. Uh, We'll put some pictures up on Twitter. Some of those young guys that we saw, they were mostly I'd say in their 20s or maybe older teenagers. They were scaling up and down this huge structure, um, putting on their finishing touches. We just happened to arrive as they were nailing the Irish tricolour to the top of their bonfire. They were also Mm. nailing up the Palestinian flag pretty much at the same level. Now, we talked about this in our last episode. The the reason why the Palestinian flag is up there is that Irish nationalists have traditionally sympathised with the Palestinian cause. It's seen by some as analogous to the situation in the north. And on the other side, of course, some loyalists have adopted the flag of Israel. And that's one that we also saw flying in the nearby streets. At this stage then, it was just before dark and there were lots of tourists and onlookers hanging around watching the construction of the whole thing, which was really impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke to one young French woman who lives in Belfast and we asked her how this whole thing feels to someone with an outside perspective. Um, the thing is, like, uh, I have a big political background, so I knew the history of Belfast before coming and even me, I'm living on false roads and I'm drinking, most of my friends will be Republican and I'm drinking more in Republican pubs. Um, So for me, the 11th of July or the 12th of July, it's just like interesting. I honestly, I don't think, I don't feel not safe. I think like nowadays, like it's all right. You can cross, go to see a bonfire. You're safer than maybe 20 years before, 30 years before, obviously. But I don't feel comfortable because it's not my political opinions. We don't share the same. It's not my community, even if I don't like using this word. Okay, and will you visit the bonfires when they go alive tonight? No, no, I I won't go because it's not something that I really enjoy. 60% of my friends from First Road are actually tonight and tomorrow in Donegal. Okay. Most of my friends are Irish and it's it's like a kind of reminiscence from Mm -hmm. the trouble as well. Okay. So they prefer like staying away from the city centre. Um, yeah. As for us, we decided to go and have a drink and watch the England-Croatia match. And we decided mm. to come back later, just before midnight, so we could see the moment the bonfire was set alight. Naomi, Naomi, it's starting. Look. Okay, so a flame has just started at the very top of the bonfire. By the time we returned to Sandy Row, the whole place had been transformed. Uh, It was dark now. There were crowds of hundreds, maybe thousands. It was difficult to tell. Uh, It was almost entirely younger adults in their 20s and 30s, and they were drinking a lot and dancing and horsing around. Um, A lot of people actually were very, very drunk, which I suppose isn't that unusual since this is, after all, a big holiday celebration. There were definitely no families here. There were no Bansi castles and it was not a welcoming atmosphere. We were 
pretty tense walking into the crowds. And we came up with a really absurd backstory in advance <laughs> that we would pretend to be Italian if anyone spoke to us. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. it, but it did it did feel like if we were outed as who we really were, that anything could have happened. It's still not unusual to see banners on those bonfires reading K-A-T. And that stands for kill all tags, uh, with tags being a derogatory term for Catholics. So, you know, like a, a, genoc- a genocidal intent. We count as tags in this context, though. So. Yeah. The bonfire was uh, all prepared for burning anyway, and there was a heavy smell of petrol and plastic. And we could just, we could make out that alongside the Irish flag at the very top, the peak of the bonfire, the EU flag had been put up as well, and that was also to be burned, which is very interesting in the context of Brexit and the border discussions. We had to be a bit subtle with our microphone. Uh, a few people kind of s- clocked it, and they, you know, it didn't seem like they mm. were that happy we were recording. Definitely not. Um, we also didn't see any other journalists around, really. So that and the booming sound system caused uh, a little bit of distortion on our mic. <laughs> Once the fire got going, it was frankly terrifying. Uh, The flames travel up in this kind of giant spiral from the bottom very, very quickly. Uh, So the last thing to burn are the flags on the top. And at that stage, it had kind of chimneyed into this tornado of flames, just gushing out this endless stream of like very, very black smoke from all the pallets. At the very top, at the very top of the bonfire is the Irish flag, which is the the sort of centerpiece. And and you can see it just start to to take flame there. Um, People right here are really happy about it, like singing in that. And... um, I guess I guess Tim and I are just like kind of clutching each other because it's kind of upsetting. <laughs> From what I could see, anyway, the energy in the crowd was steadily ramping up higher and higher. And it got darker and the energy got more aggressive along with the fire. You know, people started throwing empty liquor bottles uh, at the fire itself. You know, sometimes they were just literally screaming into the fire, which is, you know, something to to behold. Um, I think I was really taken aback by just how joyless the whole thing was. You know, it was so explicitly about anger and hate and people seemed to want to dwell in the ugliness of it all. I did find it particularly horrible when the Irish flag caught a light. Um, it kind of took ages to do. I Maybe it has flame mm. retardant something on it. Um, but, but when it finally went up, there was like... Um, a guttural roar of like satisfaction it was the kind of climax of the whole thing and it was just really grim and horrendous to watch We started to move away when the bonfire started to collapse. Uh, On the way, we bumped into a guy with a pretty impressive set of camera equipment. Um, uh, So we uh, presumed he was a journalist and we thought it might be safe to talk to him. As it turned out, that wasn't the case, but let's have a listen. (laughs) The bonfire's always great. You're always going to get a reasonably good reasonably good, uh, good picture. Where are you from yourself? I'm from London. So what do you do with this, uh, this video footage? Um, it all depends. Sometimes I save it for archive, sometimes I put it up on, online or something. What part of London are you from? Croydon. Croydon? Okay. That's a nice part of London, eh? How long have you been It's not really, it's gone downhill quite a lot. You say? Been a lot of problems at the um, Home Office and that. What kind of problem? It's flooded, it's flooded with um, immigrants, you've got all um, Somalis and all sorts of things. I so it's a bit of a problem now. All right. It, it was great when I was growing up there, though. Yeah. What's your connection with the orange culture here and all that? Um, I like the fact they're proud to be British. Um, I, I, support them. I support them for that. And, uh, yeah. Rather than directly confront him, we just basically sidled away as I started to think that right. he didn't know at first that we weren't from the north, but he was beginning to mm-hmm. figure it out. Right. So, I mean, I thought that was a really interesting uh, facet, actually, like that he he went to, I suppose, like racism, really, uh, straight away um, as his reason for being there. Yeah, like that was apropos nothing. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't we did not. We did not prompt that. Yeah. Like he just came forward that, with that. Right. Okay. So uh, we we began to make our way out at that stage, um, and I think actually 
getting out of the paddock um, was probably the scariest part, actually, because we hadn't realised while we were in front of the fire that the crowd had really, really grown. There was just one small exit, um, as far as we could see anyway, and we had to push our way through these these really, really dense throngs of people. As we walked through the crowds, we realised we had to look happy mm. or we would stand out. Mm-hmm. So um, we put on like big fake smiles and we kind of pretended to be like dancing and having fun and stuff. Yeah, we probably and, looked and, like maniacs, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but um, right when we got to the thickest part of the crowd where it was most difficult, we, we couldn't move forward or back. They started chanting and jumping and they were chanting, we hate Catholics. We're going to walk away a bit. Smile, Tim. Yeah. Make us seem more inconspicuous. How do we get out here? Do you remember how it felt, Tim? Hmm. Um, I mean, for me, it was a really weird, bizarre experience. Like, it was mm-hmm. particularly bizarre that we were able to kind of pass incognito with no one knowing mm-hmm. that we were, you know, we were Irish, we were the hated group. And when we finally got out, I remember I was like, I need a shot of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say it was harrowing, uh, frankly. I, I knew it would be bad, obviously, uh, but I don't think I was prepared for the full force of of the hate, really, um, that was just emanating um, all around us. You know, we definitely needed that whiskey. Uh, my body was literally shaking as we, as we walked away. Um, but we were good podcast hosts, listeners, and we headed straight back to our B&B because it was time to get ready for the glorious 12th the following day. The bonfires often get used as some sort of place to make a political statement and historically different things would have appeared on bonfires reflecting, I'd say, the politics of the time so that, for instance, uh, years ago you'd have got the Pope burnt on the top of bonfires. Now, I haven't seen a Pope on the top of a bonfire for a long, long time and that's, in a sense, quite interesting that loyalists' conception of who the enemy is Mm -hmm. seems to have shifted. The following morning, we spoke to Dominic Bryan, professor of anthropology at Queen's University Belfast and author of Orange Parades, The Politics of Ritual, Tradition and Control. Now you get an array of um, uh, flags, most obviously the tricolour still gets burnt. Now not all of them, there were a couple of ones I went to which had no flags on at all, Mm -hmm. which is is quite interesting. And there's quite a lot of people that argue they shouldn't burn flags within loyalism. Mm -hmm. Um, But you'll obviously get the tricolour burnt a lot, and then you get a mixture of that sort of politics, um, which uh, loyalism feels like it's opposing and that's Palestinian flag, uh, ISIS, I saw one ISIS uh, flag up there. I'm always very careful about not overdoing the meaning of it because I tend to think it's just about we're burning the flags that the others think are important rather than a deep uh, knowledge of of conflict in the Middle East, for example. We noticed the EU flag up there on Sandy Row last night. I noticed that, yeah. uh, That has appeared the last two years and I think it reflects reflects Brexit and I think it reflects a, a, a notion that, that there was obviously strong support for Brexit in some loyalist areas. Again, I think that's quite mixed. I think if you went and asked quite a lot of people around the bonfire, not, not everybody would have reflected that sort of politics, but yeah, that was certainly burnt the other day. We met with him and a group of his students as he was leading them to the Orange Order parades. Dominic told us that the parades were also important in the class politics of Protestants in Northern Ireland. The processions were traditionally an opportunity to show solidarity between the working and the middle-class Protestants of the city. These parades have quite a respectable element to it. There'd be plenty of people in it who would want it, want people to be well behaved, who don't do too much drinking, um, uh, and 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 that's their view of what the parade is. That said, there have always been historical elements who have wanted to bang the big drum as they go through Catholic areas, uh, and you know, um, and those have become effectively what are clash points as parades go through those sort of spaces. 
the parades were not designed to mark out Catholic areas, nor are they designed even now, I think, to intimidate Catholics. I think that's a misconception. That said, does the ritual as a whole contain elements and moments when that happens without, without a, a shadow of a doubt? Dominic was pretty insistent on the plurality of these marchers. Some, he pointed out, would spend all day drinking on the street, while others were marching with temperance and abstinence badges. Some were representing their hometown, pure and simple, while for others it was a very religious display. For others still, it was an opportunity to make a political statement. I asked him about the role that paramilitaries play in the parades today. Paramilitarism appears in this parade, probably less so than 10 or 20 years ago, all right? and, and it sort of has its place in the culture, but, you, but it's, not, it's not strikingly obvious from what takes place. You will have some of the bands play tunes, which you would, could, you would call sectarian, and some of them also have paramilitary connections. So, so does that exist in the parade? Yes. Is it a dominant part of the parade? Absolutely not. And you mentioned that some of the lodges now have to attach their banners onto cars because they actually don't have the numbers to physically hold them up. What's behind that well, decline? The, the, interestingly, in, over the last few years, the Orange Order has declined in numbers quite markedly. In Northern Ireland, probably, or, or, the, or the Grand Lodge of Ireland, probably gone down from around 100,000 to maybe 35,000, something like that. And, and uh, So it's it's gone through a period of significant decline, collapse in industrialisation and things like that. Has seen the Orange Order, I think, in a much weaker position in terms of membership. And you see that when you you're out on the streets. The the old pictures of lines of four orangemen, huge lengths of them coming down the street, are all gone. And you know you'll have a few lodges with around a hundred, maybe, but many of them are twenty and thirty, and a few of them uh, would struggle to get a dozen. And you look at the age of the orangemen, and I think that also tells its own story. So visually, what we saw were a lot of people dressed in band costumes. They were um, playing traditional tunes, carrying the banners that represented their particular groups and communities. And they very much represented communities. Some some members were very young. I think I spotted some that could have been four or five. Sure, if not younger, yeah. Yeah, quite a lot of them were pretty elderly as well. Mm. Members of the Orange Order are distinct among them. They wear bright orange sashes and they're often decorated with little badges and and different uh, symbols representing different aspects of unionist culture. The drumming was very impressive um, and a lot of the band leaders they do this thing when they throw their drumsticks in the air and they catch them quite elaborately. Uh, We found one spectator in an orangeman sash so we went over to hear what he had to say about the event. It's more or less just to sort of celebrate our religious um, order. The 11th night which you'll see a, a lot of controversy over, over the bonfires that there is. Um, they were actually lit as a beacon to let the people in the country know that King, Billy, uh, King William um, had arrived in Carrick Fergus. So the beacons were lit uh, across the country, and that's why it's, it's lit every, every 11th night. It's been enjoyed for years, so it has. You'll get all the elements, um, no matter what you're going into or anything else, that disagree with it, and they'll start a bit of an argument and everything else. But I mean, you can see it today, and this is every 12, people are out you're enjoying themselves and everything else. You'll get contentious parades that are in another part of the country where other factions don't, uh, what do you call don't um, agree with, you know. But they, they come to do it, and, that, and that's it. Check the same with St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day is, is, is what they call the Roman Catholic side of the community. Say, well, it's their day. What do you mean? We're all living in one island. So uh, whether it's north or south, you know, I've celebrated St. Patrick's Day for donkeys. I've also celebrated it when it was in the, in the military. So what's the difference? Further towards the city centre, the crowds began to get denser and there were quite a lot of young people hanging around. You could see them cracking open cans and that. We spoke to one group who were having a fantastic time and they were all decked out in the colours of the Union Jack. So what's it all about then today? What's the, what does it mean to you? It means a lot to me. Does. Love my, love my red, white and blue. Love it. I've been brought up with it, so I don't know anything different than being here. Like today, I've never missed it in 21 years. Like I came here first when I was about six months old, roughly. So what? April, May, June, July, three. Three months old, sorry. Sorry, (laughs) Chase. Well, three months old, I go and haven't missed it since. Like so. Will be a big party tonight. 
Oh, why? And the where we are, where we're going like I. Where, where are you after then? What's the schedule? What's the plan? I'll go, we'll be staying here, watching the parade, and then watching the coming home, and then we'll probably head back to the house and have a wee sash bash. And no. Sash bash. Sash bash. Sash bash. Sash bash. Sash bash. Sash We hung around at the parade for a while, but there was something that was kind of niggling at us. So the whole city centre had more or less been taken over by this celebration for two days now, and it seemed more and more striking that maybe part of the story isn't who's present, but who's not here. We wanted to know what this festival, where like the city centre is open to unionists uh, just to, to have fun in any way they want, we wanted to know what it was like for the other half of the city, um, who possibly felt a bit like us, intimidated and out of place and pretty much unwelcome. Right, and we wanted to know, how does it feel when your own city burns symbols of your identity in its main streets? Does life go on as normal? Are people used to it? Is it changing at all? We deserted the marchers and we hopped in a taxi to head over to the Falls Road, the stronghold of republicanism in Belfast. It's only a short drive away. You pass through a huge peace wall that leads into a Catholic district of the city and it immediately feels like the 12th was on another planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here, there were also flags uh, flying from buildings and pubs, uh, but they were different flags. For example, we saw the flag of Croatia. They'd just defeated England in the World Cup, Mm -hmm. so they'd been hosted over one prominent Republican pub. Mm -hmm. Alongside the Croatian flag, we saw Palestinian flags, of course, the Irish tricolour, and interestingly, the gay pride flag, which we'll get back to. Right. Our first stop was the Rock Pub, and that's a notorious Republican hangout. It's been the scene of multiple attacks over the years, including uh, the bombing of a British soldier and an RPG rocket attack. This area, the Falls, saw some of the worst violence during the Troubles, and it's been commonly linked to Republican paramilitary activity. Mm. But honestly, we had a sense of relief mm. just crossing the peace wall and being able to speak out loud again without worrying. Didn't matter that we were from the Republic here, of course, probably a positive thing, if anything. Nobody batted an eyelid. Sure. Uh, It's worth pointing out uh, for our international listeners that unlike Northerners and Southerners, um, Catholics and Protestants within Northern Ireland aren't generally identifiable by their accents. Um, One person we spoke to said that there was a slight tell in the way each um, side pronounced the letter uh, H. (laughs) I even thought about how I'd pronounce that there. (laughs) H or H. Which one is which again, Tim? Uh, The aspirated H, like we in the Republic aspirate the letter H, like ha ha. H. Um, While um, people in Britain, and apparently, according to this person, Protestants in Northern Ireland, say H. Right. Uh, but that was about it, I think. Um, uh, there might be more that we didn't hear anything. Write into us if there's anything we've missed there. Um, so it was really interesting that the Catholics we spoke to um, mentioned that it wasn't their speech, but some aspects of their behaviour could give them away at any, at any point uh, around this time of year. Uh, let's hear from some of the regulars at The Rock. Would you ever go to a parade or a bonfire? Would I ever go to a 12th parade? Yeah. Well, I was actually bringing, well, I was coming home from, um, coming home three or four years ago from one, and I ended up in the middle of it. And I was fear, uh, I was in fear for my safety, trying to get across the road to get to Castle Street. But so many people were, me trying to get across the road, and when I got across the road, a couple looked behind my back, because I knew you were going to Castle Street, you're a Catholic. So how would they know you were a Catholic? Because you're going to Castle Street, and you're not joining in the prayer. I actually feel... Intimidated when uh, I work in a proud scenario. I'm, I'm going to work tomorrow. I couldn't work a day. I was working yesterday, but I can't work in the 12th. You can't work in the 12th at all? No. Can I ask what you do? I'm a painter decorator. Because, because you can't travel? No, because I'm working in a proud scenario, and if you're working on the 12th, you're Catholic. I see, so they'd know then. And you wouldn't feel safe. <laughs> That's just the way it is, and that's the way it's always been. So the very fact of working on this holiday could mark someone out as being a Catholic. That was really interesting to hear. One girl we spoke to in a nearby shopping centre said that even though no one knew she was Catholic, she felt like she had horns when she was near the parades. Like, you know, the other people could sense it and they might spot her at any moment. That was really identifiable after our incognito visit to the Sandy Road bonfire. Mm. That feeling that you might be spotted at any moment. They can just kind of sense it. So what's this time of year like? Is it different? Is it like a bit quieter or what happens? Um, I'd say it's probably different in both two different sides of Belfast obviously one's mental and then ours is quite quiet and have you ever seen a parade or what goes on the other side yeah I've seen it I obviously don't go until it's just for a scared but no I, I have seen it I know what it's like and what is it like it's just I don't, I, I don't know the reasons of why they do it like I haven't paid that much attention to it but 
I just know that it's crazy. Like they just love the party and they're it's all for their culture and they can that's their weekend to have so they can have it. Can can people tell like that you're not from there or would they like figure out that you're from West Belfast? Um probably yeah. Well when I'm in that area I feel like I have horns sticking out, like I feel like they know it's me. But they probably can't, that's probably just me being paranoid. I'm not really sure. And do you have uh, friends who've left or people who just get out of the city at this time? Well no, because the majority of my friends, they would celebrate the 12th, so they're all, they're all there doing their thing. And then the rest of us who okay, came all just stayed, in, <laughs> stayed indoors and stayed in our own side of the city. Okay, does that cause any problems between you and your friends ever? No, like we, we rep each other at all time. Like, calling each other names and whatever but it's all just for like banter it's not there's no like harm and all yeah we started working together like 18 so we've all kind of stuck together and i'd say the majority of them are protestants so like they they love this time of the year and then we fight over it and we not like fight like har- like harmful fighting but just joking and yeah they just do what, like do what they want so i just kind of from the way i was brought up just let them have their day and stay away from all the drama we headed further down the Falls Road to the famous Felons Club. Um, that's a club that was founded by Republican ex-prisoners and internees so that they could stay in touch. Uh, it was pretty notorious during the Troubles and it used to be raided by the RUC police force uh, all the time. Uh, nowadays though, it's a very open and lively bar and restaurant with a nice terrace out front. Uh, the place was thronged with people eating outside and there was a generally happy holiday atmosphere. You know, uh, once again, the, this is a public holiday in Northern Ireland. Let's listen to what some of the locals there had to say about their experience of marching season in the city. You do notice in your own street and you oh, know yes. like in work and stuff there's a lot of people still take this time off. Our brother's actually up brother's in Donegal. Donegal. A lot of people go to and Donegal. My sister's in yeah. Waterford today so a lot of people still do leave because a lot of you know things aren't open and you know there's still a lot, is a bit of tension about. Yeah, you don't feel intimidated? No. no well as long as you stay to the, the yeah. right areas. You would need to stay local like you couldn't. Well we went we went last year to we went to Newcastle and it took us about two hours to get home for a 45 minute drive so. We got stuck behind yeah, parades and stuff. Stuck and then you don't know what you're getting yourself into yeah. so you're just as well just stay local. You are restricted still yeah. yeah. But you would feel intimidated if you went out of your own you area very yeah. much. And you couldn't go anywhere near like the bonfires or anything like that. Have you ever been to a parade? No. Oh God, no. What's the matter with you? <laughs> no. You would never choose to go to one. We were talking to a few people uh, on the other side of the city uh, yesterday who said that everyone was welcome and that it you know, wasn't such a big scare. <laughs> That's refunded. <laughs> it's still a sectarian march. Now, we mentioned flags there earlier, but one of the most interesting aspects of the flag politics in the falls, we found, was how prominent the gay pride flag was. Mm. Next door to the Felons Club, a local print shop, was covered in the pride flag from top to bottom. And we also saw them flying in various places, houses, lampposts, old man pubs, everywhere. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack here, actually. Uh, It was pride season Mm -hmm. uh, during that time, which is probably why uh, most of those flags were on the lampposts. But you also have to remember that equal marriage is still not legal in Northern Ireland. Right, and this is largely because the biggest unionist party, the DUP, have repeatedly blocked any possibility of it happening. Many Protestants in the DUP, we might note, are quite hardcore in their religious beliefs, kind of think along the lines of evangelicals in the United States, say, and many believe that homosexuality is just intrinsically wrong. Yeah, right. So in a way, for nationalists in the falls to fly the pride flag proudly is a bit of a two fingers to the unionist uh, DUP. Uh, But even aside from that, flying this flag proudly is still quite a statement from a mostly Catholic community. And it aligns northern nationalists with the new majority in the Republic, who recently brought in equal marriage by this landslide popular vote a few years ago. It's also politically clever because it it aligns nationalists with progressive and liberal values. There's a very strong demand, particularly from a younger generation, for a positive politics that make just, you know, works to make people's lives better rather than focusing Mm. on these old divisions again and again. And the gay rights issue is a rallying point for progressive and unaligned people across the spectrum. And it's quite a strong contrast with some strands of unionism that are kind of doubling down on their conservatism. There was one more reason for the particular excess of pride flags in the Felons pub, though. Um, the previous night, loyalists had stolen the pride flag from the print shop. This was in order to put it on their bonfire, we were told, anyway. Uh, so now the street was hanging them out in force in response. We spoke to one man we spotted uh, in the club wearing uh, a pride t-shirt, and he told us what had been going on in the last few days. 
Um, I would like to start on the Pride flag, obviously. It is the month of July, which is more or less represented for the Pride itself. Um, not being swinging that way myself. I've got two kids to back that up. <laughs> um, I do think that everybody deserves an equal chance in life, especially those who are a bit more prone to prejudice. People obviously just want everyone to be treated equal, myself included. I concur less what your nationality is, your religion, your sexual background is. Why should people bother? And I think people are starting to realise that, that people should not be too involved in other people's lives. So, Tim, what was your biggest takeaway from all of this? Well, of course, the, the whole thing was a really fascinating experience. I suppose it's a kind of a cliche to take away from Northern Ireland, but I was amazed again just at the extent to which people go on with their normal lives in the shadow of this incredibly divisive and dramatic activity uh, going on around them. On the one hand, I was really balked by the extent to which unionists seem to be able to take over the city, that they have this kind of unquestioned run of the place, and that that's based on an underlying implicit threat of violence. Mm. Um, on the other hand, though, I was so impressed and charmed by that lovely couple that we met at the first bonfire, and by that whole um, atmosphere, actually, in the Donegal Pass. And when you see things like that, you can definitely see how this whole festival could, you know, very feasibly be made inclusive and violence-free, and something for the whole community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the main celebrations are focused on these, you know, 300-year-old historical victories. And they, you know, undoubtedly played a really important role in the whole culture and history of the province. And there's no reason why everyone shouldn't be able to join in in a festival that's based around that. Uh, so maybe, maybe um, you could catch a glimpse of the parades and the bonfires having a different future in a peaceful Northern Ireland, maybe in the next generation or two, who knows. One last thing that really hit me uh, here more so than in Derry, actually, was a kind of frustration uh, in the nationalist community with us, basically, with us from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we were asking questions about this, you know, um, a lot of people just kind of sighed, you know, <laughs> they, they sighed at us, like at our own relative knowledge gap about these incredibly mm-hmm. significant things uh, that were happening just a few kilometres uh, over the border. Now, what about you, Naomi? What did you take away? Yeah, I, re- I remember those moments as well. Mm. Um, like, people just looked at us like, what are you, an idiot? Mm. Like, you know, <laughs> if we'd ask them, like, so, what's the 12th? What's it all about? You yeah, know, people yeah. were, like, looking at us like, As if we really didn't know. Yeah. You? <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like they, 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 I mean, obviously, we, we ask questions like that because we want them to explain it in their own words, not because we don't know anything. But, it, it you know, we were being the ignorant and cost uh, Southerners in that moment and we really got a sense of the frustration um, you know like that they deal with this day to day and like you know we're we're just totally kind of kind of ignoring it and not not engaging with it for sure the other thing is there are so many stories that we could have told and didn't hear because I mean we're talking about an entire city we're Mm. talking about a lot of diversity here so for example we were Uh, told about and, you know, provisionally sort of invited to a barbecue that happens of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and who I don't identify as any either, that they have, you know, every year on the 12th, kind of as a gathering for people who don't kind of care or engage in the 12th Mm -hmm. one way or another, you know. So that shows you that, like, there's, there's a whole huge middle ground, as always. Sure, yeah. And we were also invited to East Belfast to hang out with some progressive loyalists on the 12th uh, to chat with them about why the day is important for them. And those were people who would have no problem, we should say, flying the pride flag or anything, uh, who would identify as working class and progressive, but very much loyalist at the same time. Um, And unfortunately, it was really sad. That was a side we didn't get to explore because the situation was getting just a little bit too tensed in East Belfast. And we were having major problems with transport, so we couldn't really rely on getting there safely and back again. So sorry, guys. But in the end, we're really just glad we got to make the trip at all, I think. We really wanted to go there because it's this huge cultural event that we really don't um, get to know mm. about really at all. Um, and, and we wanted to see if we could understand it. That was my, my main thing. Is it something that one day potentially we could be a part of? Could we all celebrate this together? But also, I really wanted to make this episode to... So that there would be a way of telling people in Britain that this goes on as well. Because sure. every now and again, there are these sort of, so like a little bit of token media coverage maybe about it. But you get this sense, you just get the sense that nobody knows anything about it. And I mm. wish they would, you know, I wish that they that they knew. Sure. Um, so hopefully, yeah, this, I don't know, people can maybe listen to this as a Yeah, we're looking, at, we're looking at you, Karen Bradley. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Tim. Yeah, we're recording this just after Karen Bradley, the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland, has admitted that she didn't even know that politics was 
uh, divided along community lines in Northern Ireland before she became Secretary of State from Northern Ireland and that she had never <sighs> been to the province either. Um, right. well, yeah. So at this stage, we're just shaking our heads. Like in a really grim way, not surprising, mm. um, you know, at the like the last Secretary of State's also were completely ignorant. But like to, e- to just sort of blithely say that, not even afraid of the consequences, like that's that's something in itself, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think she could do actually um, with maybe retracing our steps uh, in Belfast over the 12th uh, to, to get a window in. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I think that is important to say is that our last episode, of course, was a little kind of encapsulated history of Derry. Um, but, you know, Belfast is a lot bigger than the 12th and the 12th yeah. is a lot bigger than Belfast. We're not trying to uh, align the two uh, in any ways. This is just our experience of these two days. Before we go, we have to say a really hard felt thank you to our Patreon donors. Yes. These last two episodes were, mm-hmm. would not be possible without you. Yes, absolutely. That is the 100% truth. Every bus ticket and every B&B that we stayed in, you know, every coffee that we downed mm-hmm. to keep us going. Honestly, all of that was made possible by you guys. So thank you. Yes. And support like this has just kind of opened the doors for what's possible for us on the podcast. So thank mm. you so much for just helping us to bring the podcast to a new level. Okay. Uh, so if any of our new listeners would like to get in on that action and support us uh, for uh, as little as less than a euro a month, uh, you can do so now at www.patreon.com slash the Irish Passport. Uh, when you donate, by the way, you'll gain exclusive access to the entire library of our special extra content episodes uh, called Half Pints. Alternatively, you could share the podcast with your friends or leave a lovely review for us. Whatever app you use, it makes a huge difference. And of course, it doesn't cost anything. In the meantime, that's all for us from now. So slán. Slán, everyone. Beautiful, beautiful phrase, Sam. <laughs>